So how many of you have ever heard of the former uh, radio personality, Paul Harvey? Okay, a lot of hands out there. Uh, one of my just favorite little memories of, of being a kid was driving around with my dad or having the radio on during a Saturday or going on a road trip and, and Paul Harvey would come on. And you'd have to stop and listen to him. I mean, he just had that great, great voice and he always signed off with, Good day. Right? This was really cool. But, but he had this one particular thing he would do um, called the rest of the story. You ever heard that? Uh, if you haven't, Google it. It's totally, it's totally worth checking out. What he would do is he'd do a two or three or four minute profile, usually of a person or of a situation. And he'd give you a little bit of information, but then uh, he would tell the story and you would hear kind of all these interesting things. And then at the end, there would be like this big reveal of who it was he was talking about or what had really happened. And he would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Just, just really interesting and fascinating. And what we get to as we study this book of Ruth, and today is the last chapter of this book that we've been working our way through, is we get the rest of the story. There have been a lot of interesting and difficult and kind of scandalous and other just... I mean, if you, if you have thought that up to this point the Bible is kind of boring and, and not very interesting, you didn't read Ruth. I mean, Ruth is filled with kind of drama, intrigue, um, all sorts of scam. I mean, it's just, it's totally interesting. And now we get the rest of the story. What, what was God really doing in all of this? That's what we're going to look at today. And that's what we, we see in, in chapter four. So let me bring you up to speed because I know a lot of you haven't been here for this series. And so I want to tell you kind of what happened and set the stage for what we look at for chapter four. So this is, this is kind of a summary of chapter three. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, sorry. In chapter 1, we are introduced to a gentleman named Elimelech. And the name Elimelech means, my God is king, or God is my king. And Elimelech and his family live in Bethlehem. And there's a huge famine in the land. Uh, nobody can find food. And so Elimelech, whose name means, God is my king, decides that rather than trust God and live in Bethlehem, he is going to go to Moab, where he hears there's food. Now, in our day, we would think, well, who cares? Just go where there's a job or go where there's food or whatever. But to go into Moab was to go into a land that was like arch enemies of Israel. Uh, idolaters, um, godless people, uh, really harsh and brutal people. Um, they did all sorts. Of, I mean, child sacrifice was a part of their worship experience. I mean, this, this was a, a bad place. And Elimelech doesn't trust God as king, and so he goes to Moab to find bread. Well, he takes with him his wife Naomi and their two sons. And the two sons marry. They marry a couple of different Moabite gals. One's name is Orpah, uh, who Oprah is interestingly named after. Um, and they changed it, I guess. But Orpah and Ruth, and uh, those are the wives of the two sons, Chilion and Malon. Well, soon after they're there, Elimelech dies. We don't get any information on how or why or what exactly happened, but he dies and Naomi is left as a widow, but at least she has her two sons. Well, then after about 10 years, uh, there's no indication that either Orpah or Ruth have been able to have children. So they've experienced barrenness or infertility. They, they're trying to get pregnant. They can't do it. And then their husbands die. And so there Naomi is in Moab in this foreign land. She'd been there 10 years. Husband dead. Son one dead. Son two dead. And she's there all by herself. She says, I'm heading back to Bethlehem. 
So she goes back to Bethlehem and, and she first invites the, the Moabite gals, Orpah and Ruth, to come with her. And they start to come. And then after a while, she's like, you know what? You really should go home. If you go back to Moab, uh, you'll, you'll have a chance to get remarried. You'll have a future in front of you. Orpah says, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Ruth says, no. Ruth has had some kind of experience where she now loves the God of Israel. And she decides that even though it means walking away from her family, walking away from what's comfortable, walking away from what's familiar, it's better for her if she will go with Naomi to Bethlehem, where she's going to be an outsider. And she's going to be having to take care of this really bitter, uh, hurting old widow. Really courageous of Ruth to do that. And so they go back and they get to Bethlehem. And when they get there, uh, all the friends of Naomi are like, Oh my gosh, we haven't seen you in so long. Is that really you? And she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Which is a word that means bitter. Because the Lord has been harsh to me. He's dealt bitterly with me. He's against me. He's testified against me. And and you can imagine. I mean, can, can you imagine... And this is a little bit of, of what the Ashtons were just talking about, right? I mean, death, death, death. De- I mean, that is wearing on you. I mean, so it's easy to go, man, she shouldn't have been so bitter. Well, life was really hard for her. And she was bitter. But at the end of chapter 1, we got this glimpse that God was doing something. God was bringing hope. God was bringing restoration or redemption to the surface. And what that was, was bread had come back. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, this hope that God was going to provide. And so in chapter two, what we see is that Ruth now says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to find food, right? We got to take care. I got to take care of me and Naomi. And so she goes out um, to a field. There was a system set up where you could walk around kind of the edges of fields and, and take the grain from there. And so the poor could be provided for. And so she goes to do that. And it says in the scripture that she just so happened to go to the field of a man named Boaz. So we're introduced to Boaz. Boaz is a man of character. He's a man of integrity. He's a generous man. Even though they just come off this really long famine, Boaz is generous. He's constantly giving her bread and giving her barley and taking care of her. He's amazed by her story that she would uh, do all this for her mother-in-law. And, and he just showers grace upon grace to her. And there is kind of this connection in chapter 2, right? Like, you know when you're watching a movie and you're like, those two better hook up. Like, they better get together. Like, if this movie doesn't end with them, like, with like a wedding scene for them, like, I'm not going to like this movie, right? You know that? And that's how you feel as you read chapter 2. But nothing really happens. So chapter 3 opens with Naomi having seen everything that's going on, saying, we got to get these two together. And, and that was fine. I mean, it's absolutely true. She was right. It seemed like Boaz was the right guy for Ruth. Uh, one of the ways that we know that is that there was this idea, and we talked about this some last week. Um, this, again, is just really important for background. This idea of redeeming. Redeeming land or redeeming someone out of slavery or redeeming someone who was a widow. And here's what this concept was. You've got to get this if you want to understand the rest of the story. Uh, what would happen was the only way, uh, basically people in Israel had land. And that land stayed in their family name as long as there was somebody to continue that name. That's why it was very important and very valuable to have a son. Now think about this. Elimelech had this land that belonged to his family. Even though he left, he comes back and it's still his land. But he doesn't come back. And his sons don't come back. 
It's Naomi and it's Ruth. And so if, if they don't have someone to continue that family name, they're going to lose the land forever. And so what they need is a redeemer. Now, the way that God's uh, word had sort of ordained that this would all take place was that somebody in the family, usually it was a brother, uh, but then it would sort of go to the next closest kin, or, if you will. The, the closest person to the widow would marry the widow and have a child, and, and that child would carry on the family name of the deceased husband. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what's going on. So Boaz, it turns out, is a relative. He's part of this kinsman clan that is eligible to be a redeemer. And so Naomi is watching all this take place and goes, Boaz and Ruth seem to like each other. Um, he's a kinsman. This looks like a really good opportunity. And so she hatches a plan, a scandalous, mischievous plan. And this is what we talked about last week. Essentially, her plan is this. She says, listen, Ruth, go down to the threshing floor at the end of the barley harvest, huge party time, people eating and drinking and having a great time, and go down there, and after everyone's left, when it's dark, lay down next to him and uncover his feet, and he'll know what to do. She's basically saying this, sleep with him. Because the biblical ethic was that if you slept together, you were to be married. That was what was expected. And so she's going, let's short circuit this whole thing and just kind of manipulate our way into it. And so that's her plan. And Naomi gets dolled up, puts on, you know, her Moabite midnight perfume. And she heads down to the threshing floor and, and, they, and she lays there and she does the thing. Except for uh, uh, Boaz has way too much character to follow through with that. He knows that that would be to take advantage of her. He knows that vulner- she's vulnerable. And he knows that there's someone else closer to her than him who really should be the redeemer. Well, she's very bold. I mean, this is like the ultimate Sadie Hawkins moment uh, where she goes to him and says, Boaz, listen, will you marry me? Will you spread your wings over me? I mean, hugely courageous of her to do that. And he says, I'd love to, but listen, there's someone closer. We're going to go talk to him. If he'll redeem you, then he'll redeem you. And if he won't, I will. And so that's where we pick up chapter four. That's what we're going to get into. But, but here's, here's what I want to kind of have in our head as we think about the rest of the story. Chapter one. Where Naomi is bitter. She's hurting. She's angry. She feels neglected by God. She feels not taken care of by God. Is there any hope for her? What we talked about when we talked about that was that the fact that God is in control. But the question is, is God going to do something to, to bring more hope to that or to bring restoration to that or to bring redemption to that? And for those of us who are suffering, is there a hope that God will do the same for us? Is there a hope that God will make good out of our suffering and out of our pain? Can we have that hope? Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the website called Soul Pancake. Uh, Soul Pancake. It was founded by Rain Wilson, uh, who is uh, one of the characters on The Office. And it's an interesting website, kind of devoted to theology and philosophy and uh, spiritual issues. It's not from a particularly Christian perspective, but it's all sorts of people weighing on on life's big questions. It's a fascinating place to look if you want to kind of get a sense of what people are at, where they're at, and what, what the culture is thinking spiritually. And they asked this question recently. 
What makes you really mad at God? List three things. What really upsets you about God? That's the question. They had asked before, get, list three things that you're thankful for. So they'd done that and said, now we've got to say, what are the things you're mad about when it comes to God? And they got hundreds and hundreds of hun- hundreds of people responding to this and commenting to this. And I think it really brought home the reality that all of us have things in our life that are painful and difficult. And, and it's very normal and natural for us to get mad at God about it. So I wanted to read you a few of the things that some people had put. So list three things you're really mad with God about. One person put this. Number one, phlegm. Number two, acne. Number three, Justin Bieber. There were a lot of those. I mean, there were a lot of like really funny ones, you know, mosquitoes and Rebecca Black and all sorts of other kind of interesting things. Um, if you know Rebecca Black, is you spend too much time online. Um, but, you know, there's all sorts of those things. But then there's really serious stuff. And so some people, like, like one person wrote this. I'm upset with God for taking my father through cancer six months after, taking my father, you know, having him die from cancer six months after diagnosis. He was the center and rock of the family. He was the one person I had complete faith in. And then for taking my mother a year and three months later, after a long struggle with many strokes, being in a nursing home for five years, watching her painfully and slowly deteriorate and becoming a shell of the woman she was. There's a lot of hurt there, isn't there? Another person said this. They're, they're mad or upset with God about, number one, disabilities from birth. Though disabilities are subjective, it still seems bad. That some people are born normal and others aren't. Perhaps that's what makes us humans so interesting. Diversity. Number two, uh, I'm upset that there are bad people who are allowed to have a lot of power for a long time. Think about that. Think about the people through history and the people right now all over the world that have power and influence and they're horrible, evil people. What do you do with that? Number three, they said, my inability to understand so much about this universe and the life contained within it. That made them mad. Here's, here's one that I thought really connected with this idea of Ruth and Naomi and where Naomi was. This person said they were upset with God because, number one, I lost my wife, Sarah, in a car accident. I was 32. and She was only 24. Our son was just 11 months old. It happened on her first Mother's Day. I was driving. I continue to blame myself for allowing anything to happen to her. Number two. Because I still haven't found the strength to get over her loss. And number three, I'm upset with God because Sarah has missed the opportunity to see how lovely, brilliant, and sweet our 16-year-old son is. And he never had the chance to know his mom, who had the same qualities. Listen, that's real life. Like, this isn't happy, clappy, everything happens for a reason. This is real hurt. And some of you are there right now. And, and many of you aren't. But, but if you're not, you will be. That day will come. And so the question is, is okay, God's in control over it. We've, we've talked about that. But is God actually not just in control of it, but doing something in it? Is he writing the rest of the story that maybe we can't see or understand or perceive or feel, but that someday we'll be able to know God was doing something through this? Is that the case? 
And what we find as we look at the rest of the story of Ruth is that that is, in fact, the case. So let's dig into this passage. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can look at it again here. Um, we're not going to read through the, the whole thing, but I'm just going to kind of go through the story. Um, so remember, where we left off in chapter 3, Boaz and Ruth, they're at the threshing floor. Boaz says, I'll take care of this. If this guy redeems you, great. If he doesn't, I will. And so the next day, it seems, he gets up, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. It says, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Now this is fascinating because in chapter 2, it had said that Ruth just happened to go to the field with Boaz. We get the idea that, that these lucky things or these coincidental things maybe aren't that lucky. That really God's guiding it. And you get the same idea here. Boaz goes, I'm going to sit down and wait for this guy. It says, and behold, he came by like right away. Like this wasn't an accident. God was directing and weaving and guiding this. And so Boaz says to him, uh, turn aside, friend. Uh, sit down here. Now this is, this is an interesting word, this idea of friend. Uh, the, the word literally means uh, so-and-so or what's your name. or turn, turn, It's like when you're at a party and you see somebody that you know. But you're like, hey, bro. <laughs> right? You're like. Man, it's, I was hoping you were here, dude. I mean, like, it's that kind of a thing, right? And I, I get that a lot because I meet a lot of people and I don't always remember everyone's name. And I, I have those moments where you just got to go, hey, man, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what this is. Um, and it's interesting. We'll see why that's significant that this man isn't given a name in the story. But Boaz says, hey, 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 awesome, you're here. Sit down. And then he, uh, Boaz, gets together these ten elders. And it was common for the elders, the wise, the leaders of the city to sit at the gate. And you would bring big decisions and big contracts and things like that would be done. That business would be conducted at the city gate. So he gets ten of these men together. Interestingly, today, if you were to go to a Jewish synagogue or something like that, if ten men don't show up, they don't meet. For that exact, based on this passage, it's kind of interesting. So he gets these 10 guys together and he says to, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I have a deal for you. Here's the deal. He says, uh, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So in other words, Naomi's got to give this up. It doesn't get to stay in her name. She's selling it, but she'll sell it to you because you're a redeemer. You want to buy it? The guy says, man, this is a great deal. I, I mean... I'm not going to have anything to do. I'm going to buy this land, and, and great. This will be just part of the inheritance. I'll give my kids. Awesome. And so he says, he says yeah, I'll redeem it, at the end of verse 4. And Boaz says, well, um, let me make sure you read the fine print. This is a really special piece of land, and it comes with a Moabite and her mother-in-law. <laughs> right? I mean, this is what he says, verse 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, now this is significant. Because remember, the idea of redemption was that you would marry the woman, and then you would have a kid, and that kid would carry on the family name of the deceased husband. But you would be having to pay for the kid, and get diapers for the kid, and send the kid to college, and I mean... It's like it was all on you. And so, so this becomes now an inconvenient thing for Mr. So-and-so. This isn't such a good deal anymore, and I, I don't know about that. Now, what's interesting here, this is key, is the Bible does not give any indication that you were allowed to say, 
eh, I don't really want to. The Bible's indication is, if you find yourself in the situation where you have an opportunity to be a redeemer, you do it. You're commanded to do it. You're expected to do it. That, that's just what happens in our day. There's all kinds of things that God says, do this. This is good for you. Don't do that. That'll hurt you. And those aren't things to go, eh, I don't feel like it. Oh, I better pray about that. Hmm, let me think. Does that work to my advantage? No, you just, you do it. Well, this guy doesn't. And it seems like a lot of commentators indicate that they think the reason that this guy's name is not used is because his lack of regard for obeying the Lord and obeying what the scripture prescribed basically means this guy's insignificant in the kingdom of God. He's like uh, this rich young ruler who interacts with Jesus and says, Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus knows that this guy's attached to all his money. And he says, sell everything you have and give it away. And it says, the man went away sorrowful for he had many goods. He, He couldn't, and we never know that guy's name either. Here this guy is, he's building this big inheritance. He's building this great thing to be able to pass on to his own kids. And the scripture here is saying, he's irrelevant. He doesn't matter. He's Mr. So-and-so. You want to matter in the kingdom of God? You want to matter for things that count, not just for now and your bottom line now, but for eternity? Obey the Lord. This man does it, and it's the perfect opportunity. You see what he says, verse 6. The Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, this is going to cost me. And oftentimes it costs us to obey the Lord. It costs us our comfort. It costs us people maybe thinking well of us. It it costs us. And he says, ah, it's too costly. And so uh, Boaz seizes on that opportunity and says, I'll redeem it. I'll buy it. He's eager. I mean, he's totally pumped. He gets Ruth. You wonder, like, was he, you know, did he kind of include this fine print thing just to sort of make sure that he could get it? We don't know exactly. But Boaz gets roof and these people are witnesses of it all the people there at the gate they have this whole sandal ceremony did you read that right um hey take off your sandal that's the there's all sorts of weird you know cultural stuff there that we don't need to get into but then what happens is there's these blessings that the people pronounce on the various people First, there's a blessing uh, to Boaz and kind of with it to Ruth and then to Naomi. And what's significant about this is when we go back to chapter 1, the characters we're introduced to go in this order. First, we're introduced to Naomi. Then we're introduced to Ruth. Then we're introduced to Boaz. And now the blessing, the hope... The recovery, the restoration, the redemption that God is bringing, he's going to bring in reverse order. So first there's a blessing to Boaz and kind of with it to Ruth. And then finally there's a blessing to Naomi. The fact that God is going to be thorough and God is going to be complete in his giving of hope to these people. So how do we see it? How do we see God's wise, good, hope-giving, redemptive plan. How do we see that in this story? Well, first we see that God redeems these two helpless women through a redeemer. A man of character, a man named Boaz. There's some very interesting things to think about as you think about this whole story that we've been looking at with Boaz. One is this, and we haven't talked about this up to this point, but this is a fascinating detail. Do you know who Boaz's mother was? 
There's a passage we read every Christmas. If you go to church on Christmas, you'll probably hear this. In Matthew chapter 1, it gives the genealogy of Jesus. The mother of Boaz was Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. Who when the people of Israel, when the spies of Israel came to conquer the land of Canaan and to conquer the city of Jericho, they encounter this scandalous outsider, um, not all that morally upright lady named Rahab. And Rahab has, it seems, a conversion of sorts and decides to protect these spies and hide the spies. And she ends up being actually in the line then of Jesus Christ. And her son is Boaz. Boaz's whole life has probably been an outsider, don't you think? His whole life he's had people ridiculing him going, Hey, uh, I know what your mom used to do. Hey, Boaz, uh, who's your dad? You sure? He's ridiculed probably his whole life. He's, his mom's this outsider. And could it be that part of the reason that Boaz is drawn to someone like Ruth is because he knows that kind of pain? Because he's been an outsider. Boaz is an outsider. Boaz also is this incredible provider. And the redemption, the hope that comes to Naomi and Ruth comes through Boaz and his provision. He provides for them generously with the bread. He's constantly giving them bread and giving them grain. And he's doing it over and above what he needs to do. And the redemption of Ruth and Naomi comes at great cost to himself. Right? Mr. So-and-so isn't willing to do this. Mr. So-and-so isn't willing to impede his own future. But Boaz is. Boaz says, if I take this on, this is going to reorient everything. But I'm willing to do it. And the reason is Boaz was a man of character. A man of integrity. The redemption that Naomi and Ruth needed came through this man of character. This man who did what was right every time, all the time. He obeyed in the way that we tell our kids, right away, all the way, with a happy heart. That was just how he did it. And so when tough situations come, he responds with integrity. When difficult things come, he responds with character. That's just who he was. Uh, Darcy Wilcoxon, one of the leaders of our Redemption Kids ministry, uh, her dad is this just incredible guy named Ted. And Ted uh, helped found Greater Europe Mission, uh, which is kind of a missions organization in Europe that's connected with Campus Crusade for Christ. Campus Crusade is an organization all over the world. Um, And it was founded by a guy named Bill Bright. Uh, Bill Bright was this very sort of well-known Christian leader. um, And I was asking Ted, who worked pretty closely with, with Bill Bright, I said, hey, what was... What was he like? What was it like to work with Bill Bright? And Ted said this. I'll never forget this. He said, he's the only big name Christian leader I've ever been around. That the closer you got to him, the more impressed you were with his character. That was Bill Bright. The closer you got. And wouldn't you love that to be said of you? Not, oh, they're a hypocrite. Oh, they say one thing and do the other. Oh, they're always talking this way, but they're living that way. No, the closer you got to him, the more you went, wow, this is a person of character. And that's what Boaz is. Boaz is a man of character. And the redemption that Ruth and Naomi need come through him. And all of this, this is so key. If we're going to have hope in God redeeming and restoring us, all of this has to then point us to the true redeemer, the ultimate redeemer. 
See, Boaz here in this role as a redeemer of Naomi and Ruth is just a picture. He's just a foreshadowing. He's just a type, if you will, of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the true redeemer of the world. The one who was also born to an outsider. Do you remember the whole story about how Jesus came to be? I mean, Jim, ja- Jim Gaffigan, funny comedian, he's got this whole bit on, you know, imagine Mary um, telling Joseph that she's pregnant. Um, hey, Joseph, uh, remember, you know, you know how we haven't been together? Um, I'm pregnant, right? I mean, can you just imagine that? And Jesus, it says in the scripture, all the time had people say to him, hey, who's your dad? Jesus can relate. Jesus knows what it is to be an outsider. He knows what it is to be mistreated. That's perhaps why Jesus had his biggest heart and his warmest affection for not the religious people, but the irreligious people. The people that didn't have their act together. The people that were stained with all kinds of sin and problems. He loved those people. And Jesus is the true and better Boaz who provides richly what we really need, right? Boaz is constantly providing bread. And when Jesus Christ comes and talks about himself, do you know how he describes himself? I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever eats of me will never hunger again. And when Jesus leaves and he leaves his followers a way to remember him by, what does he pick? bread. It's part of what it is to be a true redeemer. He satisfies, he nourishes, he protects, he takes care of. And Jesus is a man of total integrity. People come to him and they say, Jesus, uh, you know, we know that you don't really care that much about what people think about you. And and when people try to trap him in some sort of thing, he always uh, leaves them going, no one's ever spoken like this man. Total integrity. But most of all, if Boaz is a, is a redeemer who redeemed at great cost to himself, then Jesus is the true and better redeemer, isn't he? Talk about cost to yourself. Jesus Christ went to the cross. Jesus Christ had laid on him all the sins of anyone who would ever believe in him at great cost to himself to give us hope. So that our suffering, he, he endured suffering so that our suffering could actually bring Hope. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. And any hope of our future redemption comes through him. But what about these two women who are redeemed? How do we see God's wise and redemptive plan through them? Well, first there's Ruth. And Ruth is this worthy woman, this woman of character, this noble woman. She's constantly just making uh, the, the right decisions about what to do and how to do it. And she's courageous and bold. And yet we see her redemption comes totally by grace. It's not because she's so wonderful, but it says in the scripture, it just so happened she came to the land where Boaz was owning the land. It was grace. Grace was her only hope to be redeemed. The grace of finding a man like Boaz who would do this at great cost to himself. That's incredible grace. And the blessing that they give to her is remarkable. The people say this, and they say this actually to Boaz, but they're saying it about Ruth in verse 11. They say, uh, the people were at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord 
Make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And then in verse 12, it says, And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Here in this passage, they reference three women. And they say, may Ruth's life turn out like theirs. Well, Rachel and Leah, you read about this in the book of Genesis. Like Ruth, were barren. They didn't have kids. They were struggling with infertility and wanting to get pregnant and it didn't happen. And, and yet God, in his grace, eventually gave them children and they became the cornerstone of the nation of Israel. And then you have Tamar. And Tamar is this whole long story that I definitely don't have time to get into. But if you want to read a scandalous story, uh, just Google or go to BibleGateway.com, Tamar. And essentially what happens is it's, uh, you know, without getting into the whole thing, it's a redemption story gone wrong. She's a, story, she's a woman who, who, who starts off as, in just all kinds of bad ways, and yet God redeems her. So what they're saying is, is may Ruth, who was an outsider and was a Moabite and didn't fit in and doesn't belong here, may she be like Rachel and Leah and Tamar, whom God then did great things through them. That's the blessing, the redemption for Ruth. But then finally there's Naomi. I've made a pretty strong case through this series. I don't think Naomi's a great person. There's not really much in this book that's all that commendable about her character. She makes decisions rashly. She's manipulative. She's bitter. And yet, the redemption that Boaz purchases for Ruth counts for Naomi too. She's given a son, it says. I mean, not obviously literally a son, but this... Obed becomes like her son. It's an amazing thing. The name of Elimelech is allowed to continue. And I just love the irony of this because Elimelech was a guy whose name meant my God is king, God is my king, who didn't live like it. And now God, demonstrating that he is king over the world, has brought about a person to carry on that name to tell the whole world that God, in fact, is king. Isn't that cool? The providence, the wisdom, the goodness of God. And I think what we learn from that as we look at Ruth and we look at Naomi, we we look at the fact that some people are kind of like Naomi or like Ruth. They do the right thing and they're compliant and they do what they're supposed to do. They're bold and courageous and we go, yeah, be like them. And other people are like Naomi. They're a mess. They're destroyed by all sorts of experiences in their life. And God's grace, the grace, the kindness, the mercy of redemption has to cover both of them. And as we begin this Sunday in this campus with a giant sign outside that says, Redemption Church, may we be a people who look to the true and better Redeemer. And may we be a place where whether you're a Ruth who has your act together or Naomi who's a total mess, may both kinds of people find redemption here. So that's their story. 
Right? And there's kind of a nice bow wrapped around this. And they all lived happily ever after. And it's kind of annoying, honestly, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, it worked out good for them. It doesn't feel like that to me. But listen, there's still more to the story. More that they never even knew about. If you didn't know the history of the Bible, you might finish this chapter and go, this is so weird. This has been like one of the greatest short stories of all time. And now we get a genealogy at the end? What in the world is that? This is so significant, though. It says in verse 17, The women of the neighborhood gave this young baby a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is referring to King David, the greatest king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the man who wrote so much of the Psalms. Far beyond the lifetime of Ruth or Naomi or Boaz, far beyond that, God was doing something bigger, something better. He was allowing this line to carry on to King David. But even that's not the rest of the story. So you've got to get to Matthew chapter 1, where you see that this family tree didn't end with David, but went on and went on and went on until eventually you got to King Jesus. And that's the rest of the story. What is God doing in your pain, in your hurt, in your suffering? I I, I can't tell you. I don't know. God's doing 10,000 things. That if they were explained to you, you you couldn't understand. But what this story tells us is that God is doing something bigger and better and has been further reaching implications than we can even imagine. And so it allows us to turn to Jesus, the true and better Redeemer, and know that if He suffered for us, that our suffering can only bring us Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word and to know you. And God, for these promises that the Bible are filled with. God, these, these are just ordinary people taking place in a, in a small little town in Bethlehem, off the radar from everything important in world history. And yet, through these people came the most important person in all of history. And God, here we are, ordinary people, going through good stuff, going through bad stuff, wondering, what are you doing with all this suffering and pain that we see and that we experience? And God, help us to trust you. Help us to see that you are good and that you are wise and to trust you for it. We pray in Jesus' good name, amen.